All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to be back at Redemption Church. I've been out for a couple weeks, but it's good to be back worshiping with you guys. Um, let's, uh, let's pray for, before we get started. Would you pray with me? Uh, our Father, we just thank you for gathering your people together this morning uh, to worship you, to, to uh, remind one another of who Jesus is, uh, to proclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior to one another, to hear that good news, God, and just continue to be shaped into your likeness. I pray your Holy Spirit would be at work this morning in, in everything that we do uh, to make Jesus known to us, to make your goodness known to us, to, to, to make yourself known in a way that allows our heart to trust you wholly. Uh, God, I pray that over the next few minutes as we dive into your word in Ecclesiastes, you would say to each one of us what you once said, that you would have us... Uh, hear what you want us to hear, and you would move us, and you would shape each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, uh, we are looking at Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 7 and 8. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and 8. Um, we're not going to have time to, to read through and, and break down every bit of these two chapters this morning because it's a lot, uh, but what I, I wanted to cover these two chapters together because I think that together they really help us to consider our joy. Maybe, honestly, the whole book, I think, is working in this direction, honestly, but, but I see these two chapters kind of leading us to, like, take note of, uh, to measure, maybe to gauge the temperature of the, the joy that's in our heart. You've probably heard the idea that what we truly believe is evidenced in the things we do, right? That what we truly believe is, is evidenced in our behavior. And I think that that's certainly true. Our behaviors can indicate what we are believing at a heart level. But we can also do things uh, that look like we're believing one thing when we are actually believing another. Maybe we can pull that off. We can't pull it off forever maybe, but we can do it, um, but if we kind of look underneath our behaviors, I think we might find that we are deeply motivated by our joy, or we're deeply motivated by the lack thereof. Our true heartfelt beliefs are evidenced, I think, to each one of us in our joy. And that's a, that's a deeply uh, personal place for us to look. Nobody can really say what's happening in another person's heart. Only you and I as individuals can like truly tap into that space. And I know this in a room like this, right, that, that some of us probably don't ever really want to pause and take a look at our joy on that personal level. Some of us maybe think that we've got joy. Some of us know that we don't have any joy. Some of you probably think, I pursue joy all the time, and, and maybe you do, but for some, even like that pursuit of, of joy is just like a ruse uh, to ignore the places inside of you that hurt maybe the most. Maybe you're actually trying to escape rather than heal. Some of us think that joy is just kind of a crock. Like every time you open yourself up to experience joy, you've been hurt. And so maybe the idea of it sounds like another chance to get hurt, and so you throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and you're not looking for joy. As a matter of fact, you're just looking to keep it away as a way to survive. 
In chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, the preacher who's our guide through this book uh, breaks out into a sort of poem. It's like a collection of Proverbs. It's Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 13. I'm going to read this and you can follow along with me in your Bible. It'll also be on the screen. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? There's so much packed into these short sentences and these, this collection of sort of Proverbs. And, and even just as you begin reading, you don't even make it hardly out of verse 1, right, without a gut punch like we experience time and time again in Ecclesiastes. A good name is better than precious ointment. That sounds like we're off to a good start. That's a nice thing. In uh, the day of death than the day of birth. Here we go, right? And it just keeps going like that. It's better to mourn than it is to feast. It's better to be sad than it is to laugh. Why, though? I mean, this may not line up with our own personal take on things very well, right? Why is the day of death better than the day of birth? Why is it better to mourn than it is to feast? Why is it better to be sad than it is to laugh? Because the living will lay it to heart says the preacher, because the living will lay it to heart. Just as he goes on to say that sadness is better than laughter because by the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Somehow, the things that hurt us also have the ability to impact us positively. This passage, in many ways, I think it echoes the poem that was back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You know that poem, uh, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, and so on. And back in chapter 3, the preacher wrote that God was making everything beautiful in its time. Even the seemingly like broken stuff, it was being made beautiful also, somehow. And so this poem in chapter 7, it reminds me of chapter 3 because it reveals again that there's beauty even in the things that we perceive to be crooked. Things like the day of death and mourning and sadness and loss. There's beauty in them because we learn greatly from these things. We are shaped by these things and we can grow in wisdom through these moments 
of adversity. In the back half of this passage, the preacher issues some warnings that we just read. And I think the warnings at least acknowledge uh, some of our gut reactions to hardship and to adversity and to pain. Verses 9 and 10 say, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. And say not, Why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. You know, in the moment of pain, in the moment of hurt, in the moment of adversity, in the moment of grief and mourning and loss and sadness, nothing really feels beautiful. It's easy to become angry in those moments. It's easy uh, to begin to question God, to question His existence, to question His intentions and His abilities. It's easy even for us then to, to set us up as, uh, to set ourselves up as God's judge. It's like buy into a belief that it's actually our understanding and it's actually our experience that will deter- determine who God is and actually it will determine if He even is. And the preacher is warning against us taking such a posture. He's guiding us once again to see like with a a bit bigger and better perspective than maybe we already have. He's insisting that there's beauty that comes from the hard things. So there's even a sort of beauty in the adversity itself, even if we can't see it. And in verse uh, 13, he just wraps up this exhortation saying, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And then as the preacher, if you move on to verse 14, as he begins to unpack these proverbs that he's just put out there, he begins in verse 14, and he's sort of repeating himself by saying this, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God. He's repeating himself, right? Consider, God has made the one as well as the other. He's made the day of prosperity. He's made the day of adversity so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So coming after verse 13, that makes like two back-to-back calls to consider God and consider his ways. It says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. The preacher uh, points us beyond our daily circumstances and our daily experiences and points us back to God for a bigger and better perspective with these types of questions. Who is God? Who is He? What does He do? And who are you in light of Him and in light of His work? If we considered the answer to those questions in the day of adversity, where would they lead us? How often do you pause before you take action to consider God and to consider His ways? How often do we pause to like measure God's ways versus our ways? More often than not, I think we just take off and we try our hand at fixing the things that we perceive to be crooked. And that can look like a lot of different things. It can kind of take shape in a lot of different ways. Maybe we try to fix our own grief by pretending it doesn't exist or maybe by trying to protect the people that we love from experiencing 
grief. Maybe when you get hurt, you become a recluse because you don't want to get hurt anymore. Or maybe you serve the needs of others. Maybe you serve your spouse uh, and your kids. Or maybe your aging parents because it keeps you close to them and you're afraid to lose them. Or maybe you give gifts and things in order to win people's approval so that people won't leave you. It can look a hundred different ways. But the point is we try to take control. We try to make sure it, whatever it may be for us, can't happen again to you or to anybody else. We might have a million tactics we use to do this, but the preacher, he doesn't really dive into the tactics, right? He challenges us to pause and to consider God, to consider God's ways versus our ways. And in verse 15 through 18, he helps us see like whatever our actual practices and tactics may be individually, that there are at least two basic ways that we go on our own and try to take control. Listen to what he says, speaking from his own experiences. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. You know, at first glance, I think there's some pretty curious statements here. He says, be not overly righteous. Like, what does that mean, right? Shouldn't we be as righteous as we possibly can be? Perhaps the better way of reading this for us or the better way of understanding this is just don't go the way of trying to be righteous in order to fix the things that you perceive to be crooked. That's self-righteousness. This is faux-righteousness. Don't think that by being righteous or by simply being good and doing good things, you will have earned the right to avoid adversity in this life under the sun. This is one of the ways we go on our own, right? Some of us will try to use righteous living as a way of trying to control or a way of trying to manipulate God into making our life a little bit better or a little bit easier. It's a works-based salvation. It's a practical belief that you can save yourself. But this cannot be done. And it's a gross misunderstanding of God and His ways. For one thing, God can't be controlled. God can't be manipulated by any one of us. For another, you and I, we cannot save ourselves. We prove it over and over and over again. We cannot save ourselves. None of us is righteous, not one. And if we could, what would Jesus have needed to die for? And another thing is this, that since God is making all things beautiful in their time, and even the hard things are being turned into a gift for us, then our seeking to avoid the adversity that comes our way, our seeking to avoid difficulty is actually seeking to miss what he has said is good. If we keep reading, we would see that the preacher observes a truth that we can see all around us. He already did in this passage we just read. Uh, and, And that truth is that the truly righteous still perish. They still die. And sometimes it's much sooner and sometimes it's in much more painful ways than the wicked. 
If we jump over to Ecclesiastes 8, 12 through 13, it says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and he prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, for they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. See, our righteousness, it doesn't earn us a pass. It, It isn't something that we can use to avoid things that we perceive as too hard or too painful for us. Our righteous standing before God doesn't avoid the cross. It makes a way through it. The truly righteous, those who are in right relationship with God, they do good things not as a way to like work God or work the system, but from a posture of reverence and out of fear of the Lord. The righteous, they measure their ways versus God's ways. And because they know who God is and the kind of work that he does and who that really makes them before him, they choose to follow his ways because they're better, even when they can't wrap their head around it. And I think a side note from all this is just that It helps us see that being righteous before God doesn't mean having it all figured out and knowing all the answers. It means yielding to the one who does. So being overly righteous is one way that we tend to go our own way on the day of adversity. But there's also a way of being overly wicked. The preacher says in verse 17, Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. What does that mean, right? Like, would we be a little bit wicked, though? That's all right? Maybe a better way to read this part is not to read it as some kind of permission to sin a little bit, but to read it as a call to not give ourselves over to wickedness when we can't seem to win by righteousness. You know what I mean? I mean, even as Ecclesiastes acknowledges several times over, and even in chapter 7 and 8, often it seems like being righteous and, and doing good, it gets us nowhere. Sorrow still comes, pain still comes, oppression still comes, death still comes. And so some of us, we might see that adversity is unavoidable and we just give ourselves over to it and then just try to use it for our own gain. You could try to somehow make your days a little bit more comfortable at the expense of others. And the truth is, is that sometimes it works. Or at least it seems to work for some people, right? Listen to what the preacher says a little further down. It's it's Ecclesiastes 8.14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said that this also is vanity. And like we read a minute ago in verse 12 and 13, a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Sometimes it works. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. By wickedness, you may prolong your life a little. You may uh, stay on the defense a little bit longer. You may keep the things out that would hurt you a little bit longer. You may cause pain for others and avoid some hard things for yourself. But I think that even that's a lie, the idea that it actually works because there's no real joy in that. Right? There isn't one day of real life-giving joy that comes from a life of wickedness. And though your days may be easier and maybe you last a few more years than somebody else, you still die. 
And you still don't get to take anything with you. So what did you avoid? What did you win? I'm sorry. I'm sweating profusely. And I have to do this thing. Sorry. We can go our own ways. We can turn to self-righteousness or we can turn to wickedness to try and to straighten out what we have seen as crooked. But when, any, when, when either of these ways are really thought through to their end, which the preacher helps us do in Ecclesiastes, is to think our, these ways out to the end, it becomes clear that they are both vanity. They are both grasping at the wind. Neither way can pin down life. Neither way can defeat death. The preacher concludes chapter 7 by saying this in verse 29. He says, see, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made us upright, but we have sought out many schemes. We get hit with a lot of hard days and a lot of hard moments, and we tend to just sort of come unglued in one way or another. We forget God quickly, we forget His ways, we forget who we are to Him, we forget what we were made for, and we just sort of give ourselves over to our own ways and to our own schemes, and we take control. And then the questions come, right? Like, why is it like this? Why is there pain? Why is there so much hurt? Why is it that God is so harsh with us? But are we so sure that it's God and His ways that are to blame? Are we so sure that it isn't our own scheming that keeps us from joy and keeps us from contentment? Like, what if we paused long enough to consider God, as the Scripture tells us to do, and what He does and who we are to Him? Might we come to believe that though sometimes our lot is heavy, that's because of us. It's because of our scheming and our failing to measure our ways versus God's ways before moving forward. And might we come to see that though our lot is often heavy, what God does is redeem. Like we, we said about scheming, God redeems. What God does is step into the hardship with us. He sends his own son to die for us, to ultimately like lift our heavy burden and somehow redeem us and to restore us and, and, and to put us back to the way we were made to live, to restore us to our creative purposes. See, we weren't made with the primary purpose of avoiding hard things. We were made for considering the work of God, wondering at it, rejoicing in it, and making it known in all the earth. This is life for us. This is what it means to be an image bearer of God. Like how life-giving might it be if we stopped to consider Him in our hard days? Not just to question Him, but to consider Him in His ways and how He's making all things beautiful, even when we can't see it. I said at the beginning that I thought these couple of chapters would lead us to consider our joy, to take a temperature on it so that we can see how we are truly believing or see what we are truly uh, believing. The preacher says in Ecclesiastes 7.14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. 
He says in chapter 8, verse 6, For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. He says this in verses 14 through 15, There's a vanity that takes place on this earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Listen to what he says. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. I love that in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 6. The preacher acknowledges that our troubles lie heavy on our hearts. He knows that we encounter hard things, that we get thrown for a loop. But I think he also knows that we don't, just have, we don't just have trouble pausing to consider God and His ways in the moment of adversity. We have trouble pausing to consider God and His ways in the moments of prosperity as well. Which is why he commends joy for the day of prosperity along with the day of adversity. Psalm 118.24 declares, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I wonder how often this is our posture towards the day. How many times do we pause to declare it to ourselves, to one another, and to God? And if you pause to declare it, would it be true? Would it ring true for you when you say it? This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Is that what you believe in the day of prosperity? When things seem well, is it enough to make you stay present? Do you see it and acknowledge it as a gift from God? Or are you looking for more? Are you feeling still unsatisfied? Or do you feel like you should get credit for whatever is perceived as good? What does your heart feel on the good days? Is it the joy of the Lord or is it something else? And then in the moment of adversity, in the moment of hardship, if you pause to declare it, that this too is the day that the Lord has made, because He's made one and He's made the other as well, could you rejoice and be glad in it? Could you believe that there is a gift, that this day even is a gift from your loving Father? Just as there's a gift on the prosperous day from your Father, though it's heavy and unclear in the hard moments. Would a moment to declare that the day is His help you remember His promises? Promises that He's making all things new. Promises that He's restoring the years that the locusts have taken. That His redemption will reach even this day. That it will restore even this day and even this moment. And He will make it even this very hard thing beautiful and that it has already been given purpose, it's already been redeemed, and it's already been made into a gift for you. I mean, none of this means, of course, that there's no room for sadness and that there's no room for grief or that there's no room for pain. Everything isn't always happy here. That would be crazy to think that it is. Joy doesn't equal happiness in every moment, does it? But it does include a deep-seated gladness to be loved by the Lord and be alive, even when the day is hard. As I've been studying and preparing these sermons in Ecclesiastes, I've got to tell you, my joy 
has been challenged. I've been facing some hard moments, uh, contending with my own joy, contending with my own contentment in Him. And I find myself just exposed before God, finding that under my righteous living, the truth is, is that there isn't always joy in the Lord, but there's a hope that I'll get something out of it. Often in my prosperity, there isn't always joy in the Lord as much as like a pat on my own back. And then in the days where things are hard, um, I struggle to believe that he's good and that he has good things for me, and I look for an escape quickly. I need rhythms of rejoicing in him in the day of prosperity so that he's the object of my worship in those moments, and I need rhythms of considering him on the days of adversity so that I can remain present and content as I rely on my God and the joy of my salvation. And I need to rejoice in the Lord daily to remain present and to remain aware of his presence. Over and over again throughout this book, we have been reminded that we were made for the present. We're made for the daily. We're made for the day-to-day. And we lose our God-given joy when we try to operate outside of that. The preacher says it again today. I commend joy. Eat. Drink. Enjoy the day that he's given you. This is the day that the Lord has made. So as we move into a time of response this morning, I'm just going to ask you to do perhaps a very difficult and very personal work for a moment. I'm going to ask you to check your joy, to get a temperature read on what's going on in your heart. Let's take a moment of pause to consider God, to consider His ways, to consider who you are to Him and how He's proven that in Christ. I want to invite you to just prayerfully come to him and to be honest about this day and what your heart really feels even in this moment. That could be ache. That could be pain. It could be resentment. It could be frustration. It could be worry. It could be something else. I want to invite you to give him this day along with all the others. And to tell him how you know that you can trust him today because of Jesus Christ. But I also want you to tell him the ways that you're tempted to trust yourself more. I just want to invite you to a moment of prayer for response and a moment to declare that no matter what, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. There's one other thing I want you to do before we do that. I'd love it if you would just make a note. I don't know where you look the most. Put it on your bathroom mirror. I like to put things in the dash of my car, wherever it's good for you. A lot of people like the phone. I ignore all the notifications on my phone. But if that works for you, make a thing to go off and just make a rhythm. It's not a lot to say. It's not a big pause. But make a pause to to go back to Psalm 118.24 and take a moment three times a day. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Let's try it out. Let's see what happens. Let's see what that reminder does for us. We're going to move into a time of response. And as we get there, the bands, they're going to come and they're going to lead us in worship. And we're going to come and we're going to take communion together. As you come, you can come down the center aisle. You can take the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice. Of course, 
This is representing Jesus and his body and his blood that was given for us. This is the proof that we can rejoice in him. And when we come, we are proclaiming him as Lord and Savior. We're remembering who he is. We're taking a moment of pause, right? To consider God and his ways and who we really are to him. And so we remember him and we're proclaiming him together. If you're a Christian, we invite you to come and do this with us as well, whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not. You can drop tithes in the offering basket. You can do that online. However you do it, remember that God is your provider and worship him in this moment. And then I'm going to pray for us as we go into that. And I just encourage you to take a moment and to respond to God where you are. Reflect. Be honest about where your heart's at. Take a temperature read on your joy and invite him into that and declare the joy of the Lord even in this day. And when you're ready, you can come and you can participate with us. Our Father, what good news it is that you are our Father, that you have made us one, that you call us your children. The Lord's Prayer says, Our Father in heaven which reminds us that he's our heavenly father, that his presence is heavenly, that he is good, that he is all-powerful, that he is everlasting, that his ways are better than our ways, and he calls himself our father. You call us your children, God. We can trust you. We can trust your ways more than ours. As we read earlier, your thoughts are higher than ours. Your ways are higher than ours. God, help us to like remember that daily. Help us to find ways to remember and to, uh, to remind ourselves on the day of prosperity and on the day of adversity. You made one along with the other and you're good in both and you're making all things beautiful and each day and all of this is a gift to us. It's something you've given us is the present. We can trust you with the past. We can trust you with the future. Jesus Christ is the proof of that. As you've come and stepped into our adversity, you've made a way out for us. You've lifted our burden. You've provided a way for salvation, for everlasting life. You've made a way through death. We can trust you. So this is the day that you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day you have made. We will rejoice in you, God, and be glad in it. Make us a people who are joyful in our our Lord and who are walking in his ways over ours. And in so doing, we're making Jesus known. In so doing, we're, we're, we're seeing the kingdom of heaven come on earth. May it be so. In Jesus' name.